this is Chris Angeles, and you're listening to Right at the Fork 2015. Today, for uh, your listening pleasure, we are going to talk to Paul Durant, who owns Oregon Olive Mill and also um, Red Ridge Farms out in the Dundee Hills. Um, started His family started a business and has a winery out there. And around about 2005, when Paul was a mechanical engineer and learning that business, he is yet another guest of ours who was beckoned back to Oregon to participate in the family business. And uh, they planted some olive trees and have since become the only business in Oregon milling olive oil. Over the years, he's become quite knowledgeable about it and tells us he's continuing to learn. Um, They're sourcing their fruit, their olives, from both Oregon and California. All the olive oil that they sell has some Oregon uh, product in it, and they've made some headway into the Portland market, both from a retail perspective, which is their real line of business, and with some chefs. We'll talk a little bit again about Vitaly Paley's restaurants. Funny how they always come up when we're talking about sourcing locally, because um, he was on the forefront of that. But uh, really enjoyable conversation with Paul Durant, how he's running his business now, his farm, his family, while he's, uh, while he's perpetuating something that's a little different in Portland uh, and in Oregon and delicious as well. Paul Durant. Thanks for coming in today, Paul. Thank you. Where'd you come from? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I meant I'm not going way back. I'm talking about this morning, a few hours ago. Uh, where well, Where is Oregon? The, the The reason I'm asking is because I, you know, people say wine country. That could be anything. Well, so I'm out. Uh, we're located out in Yamhill County. Uh, really, it's a Dayton address, but we uh, we're part of the Dundee Hills. Mm-hmm. Kind of that uh, area, just uh, kind of south of Dundee, you know, beautiful spot. So love being there. Good. Have to get out there. I meant to come out for your pressing a few weeks ago, right? And what is that? What is that festival called, or whatever? You, the well, ceremony. It's this Olio Nuovo Festa or festival, right. really, which is kind of this, uh, you know. Thing that we concocted about five years ago and was really it's an opportunity to taste these olive oils in uh, the, really their freshest state possible pair them with some foods have it with a little wine um, and really it's kind of meant as this community type event the miller who taught us he spent two years came over two seasons for us to mill to teach us how to mill you know how to run it for one thing and then how to make really good olive oil out of it which is probably the most important thing that that at the end of that milling season on the second year, he said, uh, you know, here's this tradition in Italy. You really need to do this. It's a big deal. And so that's kind of how we adopted that. And obviously it's, uh, it's turned into a big deal. Was it an, is it an open house open to anybody? Just come on and taste it. Yep. Total, total open house. And people are helping you press. Is that, uh, well, you know, that's what they do in Italy, right? In years past, we've actually had the mill running, mm-hmm. you know, but the last two years with it being as warm as it's been, uh, we were all wrapped up in early November. So it's been, uh, you know, everything's shiny and put away, you know, but people can come down and kind of 
see how see how it works with it not actually running. So you can't necessarily reference the almanac ahead of time and say we're going to do it on this weekend and it'll work. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And you got to get it out there for in advance. Yep. So we always do it the uh, weekend before Thanksgiving. So mechanical engineer, and uh, do you use that at all? In uh, yeah, all the time. I how think, so? Uh, well, engineers are great problem solvers. I mean, that's uh, you know, what do you know? What do you don't know? Make a list, figure it out, and so that's uh, that's how I was trained. And I had, you know, my career. I started with Hewlett Packard. You know, I have a uh, my mechanical engineering degree, undergrads from right here in Portland at Portland State, great school. And then I had the opportunity to go to University of Texas and get a master's degree. And then I went to work for Hewlett Packard and. I did a variety of things for them. I worked in microfluidics. I was a research scientist. I left there. I went into consulting. And then, you know, the uh, whole, uh, you know, that was right around 1999. And then the dot bomb thing occurred. And mm-hmm. uh, I was working consulting and realized kind of th- through that process that I was going to lose my job if I didn't go out on the road and start to make rain, so to speak. And, uh, and start to become a profit center for my company. So I really started to hustle. And that's part of like, suddenly I had that realization that I cannot be just an engineer. I need to be the face of the business. I need to speak articulately and I need to provide great customer service. And so I went through that experience and traveled a bunch. Then I worked in construction after about uh, four or five years in consulting. And and so I kind of had all sides of it in the engineering world and had a great experience in construction. and. Construction, if there's one thing about if you work as a project manager in construction is you realize it's big dollars and it's time sensitive and you got to make the right decision quickly. You can't dilly dally around. So I had this great experience with all of that and was uh, kind of at really at the pinnacle of my career and was really poised to kind of take it in any number of directions. You know, always in the back of my mind, I wanted to be at the farm and, uh, you know, my parents had said, you know, back when I was in high school, I said, I want to do this. And did my you parents d- said, no. Did you dismiss it as this isn't going to be possible? I, I'm a mechanical engineer, uh, so I'd like to do this, but that's... Yeah, a little bit of that. I think, uh, you know, I always wanted to be there and it wasn't going to work. Or, you know, my parents just didn't feel comfortable with it. It wasn't big enough of a business for me to do it and, and, and be able to support myself and my family. So... You know, that was kind of how things were unfolding. You know, I was still there a lot and I still love being there and I'd be there a lot on weekends and I was still making the olive oils. You know, I'd take a couple weeks off mm-hmm. and I'd go make these oils. And then uh, I remember it plain as day. My sister and I went to see the killers at Keller Auditorium and mm-hmm. we left there and we went to a bar afterwards and we we're just talking about where what are bar was it? Just uh, Driftwood Room. See, you always remember those things. So... Uh, <laughs> We were there and my sister was talking about how happy she was doing what she was doing. And she was like, you know, she kind of put it to me, um, you know, where are you? And I'm like, well, you know, this is where I'm at, but this is what I love to do. And, and my, I, my sister was like, well, what are you doing? Are you, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for, you know, the folks to die? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, maybe I kind of am. So that kind of started the conversation with my parents. And I think my parents are still super active in the business and I work with them every day. Um, but that was like, maybe that something needs to start happening where, uh, we can transition now. And that's kind of how the whole thing started rolling. But it took about three years after that initial 
time going to that concert to really kind of have it come to fruition. There's a lot of things had to line up. Um, a lot of things had to be in place to make that happen. And, and uh, so I had this wonderful opportunity. So when you made the transition to the business full time, was it secure for you financially? Were there some risks for you? Uh, personally, uh, uh, you have a family, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah, it was a, it's, it hasn't been easy. Uh, I'm the first to admit it. And I think my family would second that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, but there's also these other trade-offs. I mean, I, 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 I get to take my kids to school. Um, How old are they? They are 15 and 10. Okay, good ages. Good in- ages. Interesting, interesting ages, I yep. should say. And so there's all these other... Uh, intangibles that come with an opportunity that make it fulfilling. And so I can, you know, and my girls are with me throughout the summer. I mean, it's just been, it's, it's awesome. So, you know, but in the meantime, you know, I am a small business owner and I, I have a pretty big payroll for us. And how many people do you employ? We have a little over 20 people. Mm. So it's a pretty good size. And, you know, we're always, again, a little bit of that, uh, my staff laughs at me. It's like, I always talk about foot on the gas. Um, you know, we are, we're always trying to round the next corner and take things to the next level and, and really continue to not only hone our craft, but also grow the business. So what are those, uh, what areas are those 20 people? Uh, some of them are taking care of trees, I would imagine. Yeah. Some are in sales and marketing. Yep. How's that distributed? So... You know, the I can we run about our we have about sixty five acres of wine grapes and we have seventeen acres of olives, and we can basically run that with four guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then obviously when you shift into the retail side, you know we have a fair number of people that work in our shop. We have a store manager, we have a tasting room manager, we have a bottling room manager basically who runs that, and uh, and then we have uh, a marketing person and she's out there. Uh, Libby, Libby, yep. Who does She's a great. does a fantastic job? And who, how'd you find Libby? Well, that's another story. So, uh, it was about two and a half years ago. My dad and I sat down and with my mom and looked at. Uh, wow, we're really growing. But if you go top line growth, looks pretty good. Boy, this down here not so good a lot of overhead and not really the volume to support it. And so we went through a process of developing a business plan. It took about eight months. And one of the final steps in that was to write a position plan for somebody to go out and make this olive oil thing really happen. And so uh, we got the position plan written and I called the director of the olive oil center down at UC Davis and I said, Dan, here's this position plan. And I described it, I didn't even send it to him. He's like, same conversation, he's like, I know your person. She just moved back to Oregon. And uh, so I called Libby like the next day or two later and uh, we met. And I think within a week we had her hired and she fit our job description. It couldn't have lined up any better. So and how, that was a couple of years ago? Uh, about a year and a half. Good. So and uh, and a lot of it is, you know, her background has helped us to elevate, uh, you know, a lot of the things I describe in terms of how we approach from that cultural standpoint and pairings with food, you know, you're as good as the people who work for you. And, and you know, she certainly helped bring that along. So how much of that, that, uh, face of the company is Libby and how much is you, how do you, how do you get out there and present yourself when you have someone doing that for you? 
Well, I think it's a really important, uh, you know, it is a family business. And I think that's part of what we don't ever want to lose that. So a lot of that is like exactly what I have this opportunity to do here today uh, is to be the face of the business. And I think that's really, really important that it gets represented that way. Um, and, and just looking for those opportunities, you know, where either I can go do things or Libby goes does things or, you know, we can go do those things together. So. So do you, uh, your girls, do you want them to be, you see them following in your footsteps? Uh, that's a loaded question. Uh, well, you know, I, I'll I, of, I guess there's two, a few different questions. Would you like to see that happen? And do you see that happening? Uh, and what do they think? I would love for that to happen in some respects, but also I know that I completely benefit from the fact that my parents really discouraged that uh, for me at a young age and really forced me to go out and build my own career and my own credentials. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had been, had just come right out of college and moved in and started working with my parents, I don't know if it would have worked. And so I- Well, you brought a lot into the business that you learned out, out, outside. out there. Yeah, yeah, and it gives me a little bit of my own independence from, you know, family businesses have a lot of warts. And I think it's really important that people in a family business have their own sense of their own identity and not being defined by necessarily my parents or grandparents. So that's been really important. So, you know, getting back to your question, my kids, you know, they're on their own track and I think it's great. I fully support it. And speaking of warts, what are some of the real frustrating parts of your business that you wish weren't there, would just disappear? You could drop something on them and they would go away. Payroll. <laughs> so, no. Uh, I, the, <laughs> that's just being a little bit flippant, I guess. I think it's, uh, it's keeping really a good focus on customer service um, and making sure that we kill it every time. And you just can't. You know, it's not a real it's not a realistic expectation that I can do that every day. I can't expect you know our employees, our team members, to do that every day. So, um, so I think just keeping that honed on customer customer service. And then, what do you enjoy most about what you do? What do you wake up sometimes and look at the sun and think, oh, this is? You know, I like it all. I mean, I know that sounds really kind of trite or maybe not a really definitive answer, but I love going out there and seeing the big views. I love to grow things. I love making, uh, the olive oil. And I honestly, I like, uh, talking about it. So I like every facet of it in its, in its own way. It's really good. And who are you talking to most retailers, uh, chefs who, where do you spend a lot of your time? I probably spend the majority of my time talking directly with consumers. So that's with people coming up to the farm and getting a tour um, or just connecting with them. I think that comprises most of my focus and we really are built around a direct consumer model. That's what we want. We want customer connections first and foremost. So 2015, what do you wanna, what do you see? What, what do you have out there as a goal that you'd like to accomplish that you, that you haven't accomplished yet? Um, well, we have our big olive oil conference coming up at the end of February. Mm -hmm. I want to continue to grow that. I want to grow the category of olive oil. I mean, not only my brand, but the category of high quality extra virgin olive oil. And that is a profound goal that I want to continue to build on for 2015. And that means reaching out to people like Jim Dixon 
in our community, other chefs in the community, people who are really representative of a high quality product, and then also connecting with other farmers who are just just starting down this path that we've been venturing down for a number of years and making sure that we're working as a team. Well, it's good. What's good for the category is good for everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's the story of the Oregon wine industry. So uh, that we've talked about what you're doing on the farm and business. What do you like to do uh, on your in your spare time if you get some? Do you have two kids? Do you get out with them and travel with them? What we're so we do some traveling, um, not a lot. I love to downhill ski, and I'm an avid runner. So I can I can run wherever. All I need is a pair of shoes and, a sh- and some shorts. You know, so that's probably my my two biggest extracurricular activities is is running and uh, and downhill skiing, spending time with my family. So you got you're skiing in Oregon, or are you going to some more exotic spots? We try to make a, a trip to Park City, but a lot of skiing at Bachelor. That's what right. I hear from my skiing buddies. Is the place it is, Park City? It, it's the mecca. So you have an olive oil palate. With the a- average person. When you're saying they're tasting it at their optim, tasting the olive oil at its optimum, would the average person be able to tell this was better versus when I tasted at Feast or or anywhere uh, else, or just yeah, buy it at they, the store? I think if there's kind of the different gradations of that. I mean, for people that are used to buying a commodity type olive oil off the grocery store shelf, that's one flavor palette that I'd say the vast majority of people are accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And then you have the oils that we make and sell throughout the year, and those are delicious and vibrant. Um, and then we make these oils in the fall, which are kind of, which will then you know sell throughout the year. But in the state that they're in right after pressing, they have this uh, load of basically vegetable matter still in the oil. And that vegetable matter changes the viscosity. So that changes the flavor profile just in terms of texture. And people are very mm-hmm. textural in how they taste. And then it also imparts just this tremendous flavor into the oil. So there's this vibrancy that comes from that first press or that initial pressing that is uh, second to none. You know, And then we'll take that vegetable matter out of the oil um, in about probably in about another month. And then we get these clarified oils that then have these, uh, that will have a longer shelf life than these, than the ones that do right now that we just made. So do you still have them out at where they can be t- tried right mm-hmm. now? Or? Yeah, absolutely. We'll taste them through pretty much the end of January. So as a matter of practicality, usually we'll get to this late, but I'm going to say that people should get on your mailing list now so that when this happens next year, they yep. can actually taste it rather than just listen to the concept here exactly. and say, that sounds good. Yep. So where do they go to so it's uh, really redridgefarms.com, and we can kind of talk about that genesis of Red Ridge, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the place to go, and, and you can kind of see uh, what we do because uh, we got a lot of parts and pieces to our business, and uh, but that's the place to lock down on it. So there's an opportunity to join a mailing list there yep. so that next year people will know. Yep, exactly. Great. So talk a little bit about Red Ridge Farms and, and Oregon olive mill oh. and how the there's a little separation of those and uh but they're also you got them oh, they do the same thing you're it's, doing it yeah it's uh it's an interesting story i guess um and i i won't uh it could be a long story no it make it the, story, make but... it the fairly long story and you can go back to how you started doing this and what you identified as an opportunity and how you went how you went forward yeah so <laughs> i'll uh I'll start at kind of the very beginning, which was, uh, you know, my parents uh, gathered us kids up and moved to Oregon. Um, from? From Northern California. Okay. So came up here, and my mom grew up on a, uh, a cattle ranch that her family had homesteaded in the late 1800s. And 
my folks really wanted my sister and I to have this agricultural experience. And so they searched high and low throughout the Willamette Valley for a place to buy. And they bought 15 acres in the Dundee Hills and started uh, started farming there, basically. So what year was that? 1973. So there was only two other families on the hill. I mean, the oil and wine industry maybe had two dozen people in it. Mm-hmm. And so started farming there. And my sister and I had this great opportunity to grow up there. And the business grew and grew and grew. Uh, to where it is today, which is about, you know, 65 acres of wine grapes, which is really the, to a large extent, the backbone of the business. And then about 14 years ago, um, my mom who had run the vineyards for years and years and established this wonderful reputation for our wine grapes, uh, decided, you know, Hey, let's try something a little different and built Red Ridge, which was intended to be this uh, destination nursery operation. And so again, we started adding more to our plate and kind of through that process. Still a family business? Still Did fam- you have general managers or was everybody, well, was it all family? It was all family at that time. You know, we, it was pretty small, uh, at, you know, leading up until about, uh, about this 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we built Red Ridge and started having a retail presence. You know, we had never been, you know, really, you know, the focus has always been on farming and plants and how to grow things and that sort of stuff. And kind of uh, through that, process, we started growing some olive trees and we planted the first trees in 2005. And I, you know, just for clarification, I'm, I'm pretty much out of the picture except on the weekends, um, in 2005. I mean, I, I loved it out there. What were you um, doing? So I'm a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. by training and, uh, really had a great career and that's another story about how i kind of left that and um and got into it do you know aj kemp at at hawksview sellers out in your i don't i certainly know hawksview sellers though okay well you you have similar stories yeah they're not exact but same kind of things with families and you were both planning on doing something else yeah and, and you're back and you could all you can both make the uh the calendar of the best of the willamette valley i'm sure yep uh good looking guys it's funny <laughs> how i'm trying to figure out how all these guys out on uh farms come in and they look like they've uh you know they're you're well dressed and you don't look like a farmer you don't look like someone who's working on a farm well i don't know if that's good or bad that's good. I mean, it's it is what it is. It, it is doesn't matter it one way or the other. Yeah. But uh, it just struck me that you and AJ both, you know, you're out in Dun- the Dundee Hills and you come into Portland and you look like you're, you know, you seem to me that not the typical farmer. Well, it's a pretty sophisticated thing going on. Well, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, and we've talked about my folks and I kind of talk about a lot. I mean, it's it's wonderful to grow it. It's wonderful to make it, whether it be wine or olive oil or whatever. But then the bottom line is you got to sell it. And that means you got to be in the game. And that's, you know, so you got to be able to get out in front of people and talk and be, you know, comfortable really in virtually any setting uh, because you want to, you want people to enjoy your product, you know, so mm-hmm. that's a big, it's a, it's important. Mm-hmm. But it comes, you know, we'll talk about that and what that process has been for you. Because mm-hmm. obviously when you started, when you decided to plant some olive trees, you had to have a vision for that whole process. It wasn't just about planting the olive trees and then everything was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I'm sure, and you're still working at it. You're importing some of your, your product to press here. Right. So. Yep. So we... You know, so kind of backing up to that 2005 Yeah, I'm mark, sorry to take you away from that. Um, you know, we started growing these trees, and and really a credit to my parents, and, you know, I give them a lot of 
a lot of uh, acknowledgement in this process. You know, my dad went down to California and explored different planting methods, met a ton of people. And if you look back, and so we planted 2,000 trees, which you'd say, man, that's a lot of trees, and jumped in pretty, pretty deep. And if you look back, you know, farmers remember weather, like, you know, it's just ingrained, you know, we can talk about seasonality. Oh, remember December of 2008? You know, that was brutal. And people like, what, what are you talking about? But we had, if you look back, we had three really mild winters, uh, 2005 through 2008. So these trees that we initially planted just went gangbusters and we got really excited. We started seeing fruit off these trees. And so then- If I recall, 2006, it rained like crazy. It, so just after you planted the trees. Yeah, but rain is great. Right. We'll take the rain. It's those crazy freezes that we occasionally get that uh, that really has been trying on our uh, agronomy. But anyway, we planted, the trees did great started seeing some fruit. And so that's when my folks decided, you know, hey, let's put in a mill and let's start uh, start making a little bit of olive oil out of that and and jumped in. And then we've kind of had this, a little bit of the school of hard knocks with, uh, with finding the right varietals, the right agronomy. And so working on that side of it, and then at the same time, trying to make this beautiful olive oil product, which led us down on a really a journey of finding really great farmers uh, who could provide us fruit. And so that's, is the long-term vision to just grow your own fruit and press that or to have blends or what? I think all things being equal, I would love to be able to say, yeah, it'll be a hundred percent estate and that's where we're going to end up. But the practicalities of it, it, it is, it is a business and we need to be able to ensure continuity. Uh, for us to have a down year would be devastating, not only to myself, but you know, the employees that work for us. So those relationships that we've built in California, uh, we'll continue to keep those. It's really important. Well, plus you're learning from them. Exactly. Too, I would imagine. I mean, you know, these are, uh, they're great. It's been fascinating to work with these guys down there. You know, one of the growers, he's sixth generation uh, in California. I mean, these are a long time family farmers. And, and they're milling their own too. So they're selling it under their own name? Well, or for the most part- Are they part, just generally providing it to people who are milling it? It's a little bit of a mixed bag, but for the most part, it's, these are just pure farmers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're selling their olive oil to other folks. I actually mill for one of those guys down there now. I make his olive oil and, you know, send it back, and send it back down to him. So it's just kind of a, it's just an evolutionary process of working with these guys. So where geographically is the sweet spot for olive oil growing in this country? Because from what I've read, you know, Oregon is not Italy and, uh, well, you obviously have some challenges here, but there has to be where the places you've been sourcing from have to be the, the optimum places, I would imagine. You know, I think to a large extent, olive oil production in the U.S. is, you know, is truly the new world, just like new world wines. Um, so I'm not exactly sure anybody really knows what's optimum. In well, the is there like a parallel? Like if you go to the 40th parallel, is that the well geographically the... But, you know, probably, obviously further south. I mean, but there are, just like in wine grapes, and there's a lot of analogies out of the wine grape industry, The uh, it depends on the varietal. So you have some varietals like Sicilian varietals that really like it really, you know, hot. Um, some other Mediterranean varietals that are really, uh, the, they like to have that dry heat. 
you know, but as you move further north, there's other varietals that thrive in a cooler climate. It's, and it's just the same thing with uh, Pinot Noir. You know, Pinot Noir grown in the San Fernando Valley is not gonna be the same Pinot Noir that's grown in the Northern Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, there's just different characteristics um, depending on the variety of the tree. So the same story, you have the same stories that the wine business has. Yeah. Well, I think, so, you know, um, we, we grew up with the wine business. I right. think we see a lot of parallels, and that gives us a lot of faith in what we're doing over the long haul, that you got to take this really long view, um, especially having grown up in the Oregon wine industry. You know, it's really been in the last, what, 15 years that it's really found its its place. And so uh, how long ago did you start milling it? How long has this been? So I just finished my seventh milling season. Okay, so even seven. Yep. So, and I think we continue to appreciate how little we know about making good olive oil. Every year we find another knob to turn. We find another thing that really like, it's like an aha moment. So it's really, it's really exciting every year to make these oils and they vary vintage to vintage, just like wines do. And you got to kind of find the sweet spot. And uh, I really think our, our oils, not that I, I mean, I was proud of what we've done every year, but I'm probably as proud this year as I have been, you know, any years prior. So going to uh, what you were talking about before, getting out yep. and selling, yep. you have folks, uh, great chefs like Vitaly Paley using your product. Yep. And there's a certain message to a guy like him to get in the door. Uh-huh. And I'm going to guess that in Oregon, it's probably a little easier to get in the doors of chefs. First of all, they're very approachable. Yep. And they also just, uh, they love the idea of of cooking with local product. Yep. Um, and so I would imagine that you have a pretty good story to tell to chefs. What is that story? When you're, if you have your elevator speech with a chef, and uh, what would that be? So when I pitch to a chef, you know, it's basically, hey, I'm Paul Durant. I'm the Oregon Olive Mill. I'm milling, you know, olive oil 30 miles southwest of Portland. It's beautiful, fresh product. Come taste it. But I would imagine this day and this time, almost every chef in Portland knows who you are, right? That would be hard with all the events you go to Mm -hmm. uh, and the press. And I think there's a really nice camaraderie with local producers here with you probably uh, i'm guessing no you're friendly with damien at be local and yep because you guys go to a lot of the same things a lot of great synergy happens in portland and and we've often thought to try and pull this off in any other location outside of you know portland and oregon it would be pretty tough you know because uh oregonians are really low loyal and supportive of Oregonians. And that's been uh, really a key part of what we're doing. And we're really, we're always, uh, that's always at the forefront of our mind is kind of that sense of appreciation of where we are. So is it getting a little easier for you selling now than it was? Obviously it has to be than it was four or five years ago when you were, uh, it was a new concept. Yeah, I mean, I think we continue to gain momentum and visibility and appreciation. It doesn't sell itself in any capacity. I think it's really, and this kind of marks a little bit of a shift that I've undergone in the last few years of of, of really focusing on education. Um, what does olive oil mean here? Um, and kind of in the Pacific Northwest and focusing it on as, as it's, it's a, 
it's almost a cultural experience, olive oil. I think we need to, it's, it's so much viewed as a, as a commodity here, uh, kind of in the U S where it's, you know, you can, you can buy a jug of olive oil, you know, you know, two gallons of it or a gallon of it literally for like $15 and to try and get people to shift out of this thing of seeing it as, as a, what is the, the lowest price to kind of equating it with an experience that heightens their food and, and, uh, and what they're maybe doing with it and who they're with. That has been a shift that we've made in the last two years to kind of broaden that out. And that has given me a lot of perspective and a lot more, I guess, satisfaction rather than just trying to be frustrated all the time about competing against what's maybe seen as more of a commodity type product. So if you're competing against a commodity, there's a price issue. So I think you implied right then and there that if someone makes a decision to use your oil, it's probably going to be a little more expensive than $15 a gallon. Absolutely. And secondly, there's a taste thing. So there's two things going on with at least chefs, which is one is uh, I like to be able to say I'm sourcing lo- local product. The other is flavor because they're not going to use it if it doesn't taste as good. Yeah, exactly. Or better or yeah. enhance what they're doing. It, it's got to, it's all of us all about heightening food. It's, it's a lot like, uh, and it's in a lot of what we eat. So yeah. I mean what they prepare. Yeah, exactly. And it should really bring out beautiful flavors. Uh, you know, on its own, it's it's very obviously very unique, and we always like to taste it without food. But then, obviously, to taste it with food, and it's like, and then to taste that same food without it, it it's it's really it's really fascinating to kind of go through that process, and it's been really fun for us to do that. And so, and a lot of times we're we're having to educate those chefs as well. Um, it, just a lot of that that training hasn't been there um, in many instances. So, you know, that's a lot of where we like to spend a lot of our time is just with chefs and, and kind of playing with, you know, what does a Tuscan oil taste like with this food? What does a Koriniki taste like with that same food? And what are the differences? Uh, I did a really cool uh, olive oil tasting with Vitali where we matrix the wines, you know, some of our Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays with different types of oils. And it, it just, it blow your mind, you know, just how different the wines would taste with a different oil. So what are some of the characteristics of your oil that uh, people might notice? Well, I think the first thing we like to say is fresh. Mm-hmm. It, it should, te- you know, that olive oil is interesting in that uh, most oils are nut derived, you know, so they're pressed out of the nut where olive oil like an avocado oil is it all that oil is in the flesh of the fruit. So it should taste fresh. And, and that's really a lot of what, if you taste a commodity type oil or something that's been on the grocery store shelf for an extended period of time, it'll taste stale or kind of, it's called maybe musty or basically rancid is kind of the, what people maybe are used to tasting. Does the bottled, the bottled oil that we get at the grocery store, the not to single them out, but comes to mind Bertoli or does that get bad after a while or is that? It'll absolutely get bad. And I think a lot of that, we always encourage people to check uh, the mill date, you know, or the packaging date. Is it on every, is it on every bottle? It's not. Okay. You know, and I think we always, if you look on the back of our olive oil label, it'll say when we milled it. And I think that's more important than a use by date. You know, so you well, that's an arbitrary. It's an arbitrary number, and you right. don't know when was that made, and uh, so it's always like, 
people need to know when was that fruit actually processed. And so that's a good question. For, uh, from the date that it was actually processed, when would you derive, when would you suggest a use by date for? Well, so this is a little bit of our niche. And uh, this is what kind of makes us a little bit special is we, there's a philosophy that you have when you can be small like us is that we can maintain phenomenal quality control in in every facet of it. And when I took uh, my master milling course at UC Davis, um, the instructor there really talked about processing never ends. And that's a philosophy that we've adopted. And so storage is one of the really critical process steps. And so we store in stainless steel tanks and temperature controlled room. We put a nitrogen cap on it to uh, keep it in an inert environment. And then we bottle every week. So rather than putting a ton of stuff in case goods, we, we bottle. And then when we put the label on the box, it'll say the mill date and it'll say the bottle date. And generally, if somebody's pulling a bottle off our, the shelf in our shop or really almost any shop in town, it's probably only been in the bottle for maybe eight to 12 weeks. So really fresh. And so that's, so having said that, to get back to your question about when do you need to use it? You know, generally what I tell people is from the time you grab that bottle, it probably needs to be consumed in 12 to 18 months. And so if you're taking a 375 mil bottle and you're paying that, the, what you're paying for us, you know, you're paying basically anywhere from 19 to 22 bucks uh, to, to get that bottle, you, you need to use it up. And if you're paying that kind of money, you, people generally, they'll blow through that in, you know, a much shorter amount of time than that. Yeah. Well, if it's taking them 18 months, that's a that's only a dollar a month for well, this oil. Exactly. <laughs> so so uh, it's really something to think about, if mm -hmm. depending on how much oil you're using. Um, what would you suggest to people? You know, I olive oil is something I enjoy, and I'll buy different varieties mm -hmm. off off the shelf, and you know, I shop at. Met, you know, one of the beautiful things about Oregon is the number of markets we have here. It's crazy. Yep. yep. And uh, so I'm. I don't. I don't have any loyalty to mm -hmm. any one oil. Uh, I have a little bottle of yours that I got at a tasting, sitting sitting right there. That's that I use, but that should be gone really soon. Um, but what do you suggest to people on how best to buy oil? It's, you know, you can look at it and say, well, this is twenty five dollars. This must be good. Well, how do we know that? Well, I think, and this is a lot of the challenge here domestically is there are no labeling laws. You know, the, uh, the, the bottle at the bottom of the shelf at, uh, at a big grocery store will be labeled extra virgin. And then you go to the top shelf for the highest quality oil and it's labeled extra virgin. There's really no good way to suss out what's the quality difference. And that's a source of a lot of frustration for producers like myself is what, how do, how do consumers really identify good product. So obviously prices is, is indicative. Um, and then, but know, there could be fraudulent pricing on or oil that yeah, sucks and they yeah, could exactly. do that for a marketing. Yeah. Have a sexy bottle and, uh, and call it good. Mm -hmm. You know, what I like to say is if you're there and you're confused, uh, ask the grocery store, ask the purveyor, uh, call them out a little bit. Like what is a good oil here and why? Mm -hmm. And, It'll be interesting for people to experience that because I think probably nine times out of ten, uh, the grocery store will stub their toe on it. And 
probably not be able to answer the question. More reputable stores will. I'm going to guess. My my not that I've asked a lot of questions in grocery stores, but I'm going to guess that in most cases, the person you ask is not going to be able to not give you an answer. No, but they might be able to go find the person that that will answer the question, and that's you know that's where we have shifted a little bit of our focus too. Because initially, when you know going back. You know, a few years ago, when I kind of get rejoined the family business, uh, you know, we looked at distribution. You know, it seemed like, ah, that's really logical. You know, we can make this oil, we can move it to a distributor, and then they've got the contacts to move it out. And uh, what we came to realize is that is a busted business model for a small producer like ourselves. So we don't have distribution anymore. You know, we had, uh, we had some distribution in Portland market, we had some distribution in Seattle, and those have gone away. And so we know for everything we wholesale, we know who it's going to, we know the buyer there, and we can provide some education to that buyer about what makes our oil unique and what other oils are really good. So, because it's got to have more substance behind it than just, this is Oregon olive milk, this is or- Oregon. It's... It well, has it, to mean something. It, has it can't mean, just be that it's local. It just can't be that it's local. It's got to be good, and it's got to be great, really. You know. So let me ask you a question. I've done a couple of tastings of your oil and some other oils. Would you? Do you ever do tastings when you're putting your oil against a crappy oil or oh, someone else's good oil? Or all the time. So we, uh, when we do our kind of tasting experience, you know, you get a chance to taste. Uh, a commodity type oil. And that really helps to kind of differentiate. And a lot of people taste that oil and they go, oh, that's my oil. It's like, well, that oil just happens to be rancid or defective. And so it's it provides a little bit of that aha moment for people. Can they really see it against your oil or would they be able to know just- Night and day. It, it's it's amazing. before they taste a good oil, do they know it's rancid or- you, uh, you Some to- people do, some people don't. Um, you know, and you'll see some of these oils, like, you know, it may at one time have been pretty good and it'll have maybe some flavorful components to it, but it's, you know, it, it could be four years old and it's just have lost all its charm. And so it just, it just depends. And so we really like to kind of taste those. And then we'll do some, you know, we did our first, uh, olive oil conference last, uh, April where we brought in some growers out of California, there's a local uh, importer here in Portland, a guy named Jim Dixon, who brings in beautiful oils out of Italy. Jim came, and it was really kind of a lot about that community event, too. Like, okay, you know, it's one thing to always be promoting your brand, but let's promote the category of olive oil. Mm-hmm. And one day was focused on how to grow, and the other day was focused on on oils and how to use them. And Jim brought some beautiful oils um, from Italy, and I think they're, they're all distinctive, and they're all just really they're really beautiful and they should all be supported um, in in a variety of ways, you know, for people to get out there and taste them and figure out, yeah, what do they like and make it a journey of discovery. It's just like wine, you know, start with a, a mild oil and then try that on your food and then go to something really robust, like a big Sicilian or something like that. And it's, it's, uh, it's really what it's all about. Have you had the, um, the, moment I can ask with Vitaly or another chef where you've had your product used in a dish and you've thought this is this is awesome you know first of all it's got to feel great but secondly this is the best use of this of our product I've ever tasted yeah absolutely I think there's uh and I think that's where I always appreciate chefs kind of doing a little bit of that discovery 
and experimenting with it. Um, you know, Patrick McKee over at Paley's, he's always doing, you know, different stuff with our oils and he'll try, you know, we'll send him different stuff and he'll do a different thing with it. And, you know, they're, they're just great. Can, does one dish come to mind that you had kind of an aha moment that it all came together for you? Well, I really like, uh, <laughs> I've had a few, I guess some of them, the stuff that I've made. Um, and then I really like the way, uh, Imperial and Paley's Place finishes it on charcuterie and on cheese. I think that that elevates the flavors in that house-made charcuterie. Just it it just makes it great, you know. And then I've done things um, where I cook at home and have tried. You know, we have like our koriniki oil is like it's got this tomato vine component to it, mm-hmm. and I'll put it in. You know, like with a fish, or I'll do like these uh, like corn puree and I'll put in that Korniki oil into that and it'll taste fantastic. I've tried our Tuscan oil, which I love. I've tried it in the same dish and it's like, ah, doesn't do it for me. So it's a little bit of that, finding the nuance of the right oil with the right dish. Uh, Portland, where are you hanging out and where are you eating other than Imperial and and Paley's Place? So, well, yeah, obviously Imperial. um, And then, you know, and it's funny, you kind of go where your kids like to go. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not. We've moved beyond Chuck E. Cheese. So that's uh, my still my joke to my 22 year old when we want to have a family moment. He can't understand why I think that's funny. But. So kind of a, I think we uh, the marquee the restaurant that's right next to Keller. Mm-hmm. Uh, my youngest daughter loves that place, and uh, so we've gone there. We spent a lot of time this summer at Park Kitchen, which mm-hmm. is kind of getting back uh, to where we you know used to eat. Um, again, my uh, the deep fried green beans and bacon. Mm-hmm was to die for so we ate a lot of that this summer and then and uh, they're in their 11th year they've been you know scott's been yeah making that happen there aren't a lot of restaurants that can claim that well no paley's of course but but you know this town is all about the new and there are places like park kitchen that are just still killing it and that's harder than being in your second year i think yeah so there and then the other place we like to go and uh, my oldest daughter and i have kind of developed this as a little bit of our winter routine is Sunday afternoons at Bridgeport. And uh, they have a pretzel there with this uh, this like porter sauce that, uh, that you put on that pretzel that is just to die for. So we'll watch a little football, I'll have a beer, and we'll finish with some cookie pie. Oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Miss, missed that one yesterday. Well, cool. Thanks very much. So, where are we going to be? Uh, where are we going to f- see you appearing with olive oil? And, the, and tell us a little bit about the conference. So, quickly. the conference is uh, the last uh, weekend of February. So, it's like the 28th and the 1st of March. And it's a two day conference. The first day is focused on agronomy, growing olive trees, you know, those sorts of things. And the second day, we shift to um, uses of olive oil. You know, what does the Mediterranean diet mean and how can you incorporate this? Um, and what if, you know, flavors of olive oil, you know, some of the basics of tasting, those sorts of things. And then it will be capped with uh, a beautiful dinner by Kathy Wims. Um, and we'll put together this beautiful olive oil centric. Oh, that's uh, nice. And where is that taking place out at the? It'll be out at, uh, out at the Oregon Olive Mill. Okay. So at the farm. And people find information on your website about that? Absolutely. What's your Twitter handle and your Instagram? 
So I have we to. We need admit to call it. Libby for this. We this need is... to call Libby for this. Our, our Instagram. <laughs> we is have it. We'll... Somewhat, yeah, is somewhat lagging. I have to admit. <laughs> well, I'm lagging a little. Heather, what are the? Uh, it's at Oregon Olive Mill. Is your Twitter? Twitter. Red, yep. At Red Ridge Farms and, Instagram. And yep. at Red Ridge Farms for Instagram. So yep. find uh, all Paul's information there. Get out there. Try the olive oil. Thanks so much for uh, for visiting. Appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. 